Blog Talk Radio. pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Let's get started with a couple of announcements before our really exciting topic today. First of all, there's a big course sale going on at teachmetotalk.com. If you are on my email list, you already know that because you got an email yesterday. Uh, If you're not, let me tell you about it. We're offering right now $25 off any of my full-length continuing education courses. The first one is Early Speech Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor. It's a super comprehensive course, 12 hours on DVD, that will walk you through the hierarchy of helping toddlers who have speech-language delays. So you'll talk about social skills, receptive language skills, a little bit about cognition in that course. Kind of hold that thought there because we're going to talk about cognition a little bit later expressive language skills, and then speech intelligibility. So if you are new to early intervention, if you are a new SLP, if you are a seasoned clinician like I am, but you feel like, oh, I need some new ideas, I need a refresher, I need to like my job again, (laughs) that's a great course for you. And again, all of my full-length CE courses have um, ASHA credit. So if you're a speech pathologist, again, you can use that for your certification maintenance or your state licensure or your program requirements, whatever you're looking for there. The second course that's on sale is Steps to Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers. If you don't have that information, if you don't have a step-by-step way to move a child from being nonverbal all the way through phrases, meaning that he learns to copy sounds and words, and then again, move on to that last little culmination where he talks in longer utterances. That's a fantastic course for you. And again, both of those courses have tons of video clips. So you'll not only hear me teach it and talk about it, and again, in a little more in-depth way than we get to do here on the podcast, uh, because the podcast, remember, is designed to reach a broader audience. So lots of parents listen to this show in addition to all of us therapists. So again, the courses are a little more technical, but lots of committed parents tell me that they have benefited tremendously from the courses too. So if you're a parent and you're thinking, oh, I don't know, if you want to get one, my suggestion would just be try it out and see if it's if it's good for you. It's not going to be. It's going to be more in depth and more technical. But if you're a committed, educated parent, it will not be too hard for you to think about that material and, again, be able to synthesize that and assimilate that into what you do with your child. The last course that's on sale is my new course, Is It Autism? Recognizing and Treating Toddlers and Preschoolers with Red Flags for ASD. Part one of that course is a tool that any of you who is kind of on the fence with a kid, you're right in his home or he's right in your office or in your therapy room, and you are looking at him and thinking, Do you have autism? Is this autism? Is this something else? This could be autism. I don't know. I'm unsure. I'm scared. I'm I'm really unsure of myself in this area with diagnosing or understanding when a child will qualify for an autism diagnosis. That course is for you. We walk through the DSM-5 criteria, and so you'll know step by step by step what examiners look for. So even if you are not responsible for officially giving a diagnosis of autism, it will still help you tremendously as you uh, sharpen your clinical skills there, your diagnostic impressions, (laughs) so that you know what you're looking for and that you can be much more confident than if you had not taken a formal course before. Part two of the autism course is even better because it focuses on intervention. So not only is this kid or is he not on the spectrum, but what do I do about it after that? Or what if this is a kid that's really borderline who has a few little red flags, but you're thinking, oh, I don't know. I don't know if he would officially get this. Those are the kids who actually benefit the most from this kind of intervention because you are targeting what you are doing in therapy to their core deficits. And when we treat core deficits of any diagnosis, then we're much more likely to have a better outcome. So I wanted to tell you about those three courses today. If you need the coupon code, it's um, 
course sale. I believe that's right. If that's not right, if you're entering that during checkout and it doesn't work, just shoot me an email at Laura at Teach Me to Talk. But we're offering $25 off each of those courses. And several people yesterday, lots of people ordered more than one course. So it's a great time to get all of your CEUs that you're going to need for your um, ASHA certification period, that next period coming up, or your state licensure, or again, anything you would need for that. Now, if you're not an SLP, but you're another kind of therapist, a developmental therapist or developmental interventionist, one of you teacher people, as I always say, whatever they call you in your state, you can still take these courses. And again, you will benefit enormously from looking at communication from a more technical perspective than maybe you normally do looking at just educational resources here and you can all you'll get a certificate of completion so you'll be able to count it toward um, whatever program requirements you have too. if you have to get credentialed in your state or recertified or whatever your program calls it you'll be able to take that certificate and use that course as contact hours for that too. So I wanted to let you know about that. Secondly, let me announce a really big appearance that I'll be making in the fall. On September 23rd, I will be in Toronto. I've never been to Canada before, so I'm so excited about that. Uh, and you can get information about that at my website at teachmetotalk.com and hopefully sign up for that. I think they still have some spots left. So I'd love to see you in Toronto if you are near there. All right, let's move on and talk about today's show. Now we have been talking about the 11 skills toddlers use before words emerge for weeks and weeks and we are finally nearing the end of this series. We're on skill number 10 which is so important and it's helping a child learn how to initiate interaction. So let's just talk about what initiation is because sometimes I'll say that to a parent and they may not come out and say, Laura, I have no idea what you're talking about here. Or they may misinterpret it. They'll think that I mean initiating by with only with words. But guys, just like every other skill that we've talked about in this series, initiation does not begin with words. It begins with other nonverbal kinds of things first. And we'll see that in a child long before he or she is going to be able to use words to get something going. But let's just begin by talking about initiation in general. This means how a child to interact with you. And again, this happens even in younger babies where they learn well, first of all, over they, passively first, they may just cry or vocalize when something is not right in their little worlds. They have a wet diaper, they're hungry, they feel some pain, and they respond by making some kind of vocalization. So again, it could be crying, it could be yelling, it could be just a little whine or a fuss. That happens passively first because they are responding to something that has happened in their environment. Because you consistently respond to them, so as a mom or a dad or a grandmother or an aunt or an uncle or a therapist, because they get used to you responding, they link what they did first, and by here I mean the baby. The baby begins to link what he did first with what comes next, meaning I made some noise and my mom got her behind in here <laughs> to check on me. So I'm gonna do that again. And again, you know, as I'm saying this, children don't really think about it in that complex of a way as I've just described it, but that cognition, as we just talked about a minute ago, that process is happening. They assign meaning. They learn if I cry, she comes faster. If I whine, she comes faster. Over time, they learn. If I say, Mama, boy, she really likes that. Let me pop out that word again. But initiation begins in typically developing babies and toddlers really early. We're talking about this later in this series than we have when it actually emerges, as we've done with our other preceding nine skills, because it is something that generally professionals associate with 
learning to use gestures and words, which are much more communicative. And again, this typically our gestures and first words emerge in typically developing toddlers as they are approaching that first birthday or that, that first half of their second year, so between 12 months and 18 months. So that's why it's a little later in this series. But truth be told, in typical development, initiation begins much, much earlier. And again, we've talked about that it can include any kind of vocalization. And here today, we're really going to talk about beyond crying, because crying, again, can just be a pretty passive response. And we're mostly talking about active um, initiating or something that's very purposeful and that you can tell that the child has communicative intent. I mean, he's doing something that he has planned in his little mind to do in order to get your attention in some way. And it could be that he wants to ask for something he needs. It could be that she wants you to do something with her or that she wants you to notice something that she's noticing. So we could have a broad range of purposes here, but the skill that we're really talking about is initiating or starting that process with another person. And again, this is super, super important because we don't want children in that really passive role where they just only rely on responding, meaning that you as the adult has to be in tune enough to recognize what they need before they um, are able to tell you or before they give you some kind of signal. So here we're helping a child learn how to be the first piece or the first person to get that communication process going. And again, a child, let me just say this, when a kid is only relegated to that role of responding, meaning that he is he's really passive and that he will interact with you, but you have to get it going first, or um, especially our little guys who, for whom responding is so difficult that it just ever to get them to uh, realize that you are trying to interact with them, this initiation piece is really, really, really important. Um, we don't want kids to stay in that passive role where they are completely dependent on someone else to interpret their needs or to, uh, again, realize or recognize something that that would make their worlds more comfortable. We want to teach them that, that communication is powerful, and we want to teach them that they are in charge, so to speak, of what happens in their little worlds so that they don't have to resort to waiting on you or um, crying or, again, when, it, when they're strictly in that passive responding role. So it's a super, super important skill. Let me also say that lots of children with um, red flags for autism have a really hard time learning how to initiate. Now, sometimes parents will attribute limited initiation to shyness. And they'll say, well, of course he's not going to approach another kid or of course he's not going to be able to let grandma know what he wants because he's just really, really shy like me. He doesn't um, want to call attention to himself or he's afraid to do that. Guys, it's really not about temperament. This is, this is about communication a communication skill. This is about learning how to, to interact with others. This is about learning that you can go first with that. So while shyness is very real, and for some people and even children, shyness can be almost debilitating because of that, all of the social kinds of issues there, it's really not the, the it's not as prevalent as some parents, I think, try to assign it. So if you are a mom or dad and listening, and if you're saying, well, I know that he can use a sign or use a word to let me know what he wants, but I can't really expect him to go first because that's just not in his personality. Don't do that anymore. Don't think about it like that. Think about it as a communication deficit and know that we can make that better and that we can help a child get over that hump because when we use some of the things that we're going to talk about today, these strategies and ideas, even kids that seem really shy will begin to take more of this leadership or initiation role in learning how to communicate. And this always happens with adults 
before it happens with children. Sometimes parents will say, you know, I really wanted to know how to walk up to a group of kids and, and start to play with them. That's the same thing. That's initiation. Or I want him to be able to tell his babysitter what he wants. And here, here's the thing. A parent may not have even realized that their child doesn't initiate because a parent has been so fantastic about reading a child's cues and instinctively knowing what it is that he or she wants. And again, we are not slamming that at all. We need for all parents to be attentive and responsive to their child's needs but sometimes we kind of go overboard as parents and we don't really give the child an opportunity to initiate we you know kind of change that diaper before it's even really bothersome to the child we will get them something to eat or drink before a child even recognizes thirst or hunger so we have to be able to back off a little bit too so that we teach a child how to begin to get his or her own needs met. But again, as I say that, let's use the caveat with, you can't just depend on a kid who's never done that before to be able to just step up to the plate and do that. You know, you can't, sometimes a, a doctor will say something or a pediatrician and they are so well-meaning when they say it. You know, a mom will go into an appointment and say, my two-year-old's not talking yet or my 18-month-old, you know, I haven't heard any words yet. And the doctor will say, well, just don't give him anything that he wants until he tells you. God, that's abuse or could be in some situations because if we've never, ever, 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 ever heard a kid say a word, it's unlikely that he's able to do it under distress or under those really extreme circumstances like, you know, I haven't had anything to drink in six hours. So if you're a therapist, don't give that kind of advice because some parents won't really know that you're you're wanting them to temper that recommendation with some common sense and that you can't really withhold. And I, I'll just tell you, I've had parents say to me things like, well, the doctor told me that, and, you know, it was, really was a couple of days, and then I had to just break down and give him something to drink. And, I, you know, we all just sort of gasp when that's happening, you know, or when a parent tells us that, and we're thinking, surely, you know, you didn't really go that whole time. And sometimes that'll even just kind of blurt out of my mouth before I realize how bad that might sound to a parent but they'll go well of course you know I kind of gave him a little bit to drink but I really sort of wanted to wait be so careful and judicious in your recommendations to parents so that they don't take a recommendation like that and and, and make it so extreme and again when especially when it's with a child who is very unlikely to be able to use a word and what I what I like to say to parents and therapists is that we have to hear a word in imitation or in a happier context <laughs> an easier context before we will expect a child to be able to use that word or sign or gesture whatever your goal is here before they can use that to initiate they typically have to use it in imitation or or responding to something so again that's why this initiation piece has come a little bit later so i wanted to explain that all right so talk about oh and let's let me say this one more thing if you're a therapist and you really have a parent who doesn't seem to be understanding what you're talking about with initiation let me give you another way that i explain it i always say communicating requires two people and somebody has to begin somebody is the the starter in this whole process of interacting and that's what we mean by initiating who goes first now the other part of that is responding and we've already talked about that a little bit and how that usually comes first and we've talked about that loosely or actually more directly in other previous episodes in this podcast with learning how to respond next week or next time we do the podcast it'll be even more clear when we talk about turn taking and how important that is and you know again that is part of that communicative process where one person talks the other person listens and then that person talks and the original person listens so again that's a that's that reciprocity piece that turn taking piece we'll talk about that in depth next time but for today we're talking about the first piece in that process which is initiating and typically adults are the initiators particularly with our children um, before they're verbal and some parent or early in that at that first year and so a lot of parents again don't realize how that role has to shift so that a child really can learn how 
to communicate and how to begin, how to start, how to initiate. So we have to be pretty specific when we're talking with parents about that. And we also have to really explain that, as I've already said, that it begins long before words begin. So you may want to point out to a parent, well, you know, here are some ways that he's initiated with you um, that I've seen today here in therapy. And you can talk about when a child has used eye gaze. You can say, you know, he looked over at the refrigerator and you didn't even, you may not even have consciously realized it, but you immediately got up and went to get him something to drink. And so you'll say to a parent, you know, he's using eye gaze a little bit. You know, he, he, you interpreted what he wanted just because he looked at the fridge. Now we've got to really shape that behavior so that he learns that he can look at you and the refrigerator and then back at you, or he can take you to the refrigerator, or he can um, use a sign like drink or milk, or he can say mama and get you to alert to him so that you realize, gosh, he, he has something that he needs me to do for him. And so, again, when you see the skill of initiating emerging, you need to point that out to a parent and talk about how exciting that is and what an important step that is. When a kid brings a toy to a mom or dad, when the toy's broken, you can say as a therapist, you should say, oh, my gosh, I love that. I love that. He knows that he needs to get you. He knows that he needs to reach out to you and seek you out to get your attention. That is such an important skill. And again, you're reminding them that this kind of activity has to occur before we're going to hear words because sometimes parents will read information on the internet or you know, especially if a kid has red flags for autism, they'll read a book about autism or get some information about it and they'll see that lack of initiating piece or lack of initiation and they'll automatically jump to kind of that words uh, phase when really it started long before there. So again, those are the things that we look for and that we, we're really, really going to help parents uh, figure out and uh, notice, especially if it's a really new skill or an emerging skill. But let's kind of talk about what are some things that we can do to help a child learn to initiate. First of all, it has to begin with paying attention to what the child is paying attention to. What captures his interest? Now, first of all, you're going to use those things, you know, just with common sense. If he likes it, if he's paying attention to it, you know, aha, I've got him. Use that because I know that that's something that he has noticed and that he probably wants or he would like to do or use or interact with. And so you're going to talk about those things with that child. You're, you'll look at those things. So you'll begin to model eye gaze, model showing him. Hopefully he's looking at you. Hopefully he notices you, noticing whatever it is that you want him to notice. <laughs> uh, you're going to use eye gaze. You're modeling that so that if there's, uh, let's say, there's something really interesting to look at in your house. Let's say there's, um, oh, gosh, a spider web or something that, again, is a little bit novel. You know, a novelty is so important. We'll talk about that concept in a minute. Let's say that there's um, – let's say that there's an older sibling and they brought home something new from school, maybe a giant finger painting or something like that, and, and it's on the refrigerator, but your toddler hasn't noticed it yet. And you think, oh, he's going to think that's really cool. Before you start – talking a lot about it and you know let's say it's on the refrigerator and you guys are all in the kitchen and you know maybe he's even in his high chairs kind of standing there you can start by just looking at that picture and then looking back at your child and then looking at that picture and looking back at your child to see and remember what that is that's really what it's really joint attention remember how we talked about that several shows ago so the joint attention piece there and again you're teaching him you're modeling for him hey I can look at something and then look back at you and that's going to direct your attention to that. So you can do that. Use your gestures. After you've done your eye gaze shift, point. Walk over to the painting and tap it. You know, do something visually and with your body, your actions, to direct his attention to that. Naturally, we're all going to use words here like, you know, oh, wow, or look, or any kind of 
word that would get a child to redirect his attention of what you want him to see. So you're going to do that, particularly for children that you're, are still kind of wobbly <laughs> with that joint attention piece. And what you're doing here is you're essentially teaching him, I want you to notice this. Or more importantly, I am noticing you and what you are noticing, particularly if he flipped at something first. So again, that's kind of go back and listen to that show on joint attention and do some of those things, particularly if your child isn't using a lot of eye gaze, meaning that he's not looking at you and looking at what he wants and then looking back at you. That's a starting point. Another really, 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 really important thing that we can do to help kids learn how to initiate is just arrange the environment so that she needs you to get what it is that she wants. All right, so let me tell you this story. A couple years ago, I had this, oh, just wonderful family that who came to see me from out of state, and dad brought the little boy because mom had just had a new baby and it was easier for dad to travel with the two-year-old. And so we were Skyping mom in for her to t participate and contribute and tell us what was going on with her little guy. And so we were talking about this concept about initiation and about giving him a reason to communicate. Because here was a little guy who did have a handful of words, but he didn't use any of them in the context of really requesting or asking for things that he needed. So we were trying to kind of tease that out and talk about what was going on with that and that, you know, how we move words to be functional, meaning that they have a purpose and they're intentional and they're, and it's not just about labeling. You know, labeling is just naming something or identifying something. And here's the kicker. Lots of children with autism will learn the name for an object as they see it in a book or, you know, a picture of it, or maybe even in their rooms, you know, they'll walk in and see a ball and say, ball, but they can't really use that same word to ask or request for another person to give that to them or, or some other, um, use it in some other way. So they are just labelers. So that's what speech pathologists think about it. So I'm talking to this mom and this dad, and I'm trying to determine how their child used some of the words that I had heard him say. And so I was saying, you know, I know that he's, I can't remember what the specific drink was, but, you know, I, let's just say it was milk. And I, I was saying to mom, I know that he can say milk because he said it, but let's talk about how he uses that word. And she said, well, you know, actually what I've done is he doesn't even have to ask me for milk. What I do every day is I just line up, uh, I pour milk in his little sippy cups, and I just line them up in the bottom shelf of the refrigerator, and he's strong enough to open the door by himself now, so he just goes and gets the cup, and he doesn't really have to ask me for that anymore, so I need some more ideas, and then we moved on to talk about what little snacks he likes, and she said, well, you know, Laura, I've done the same thing. I've just put those really low, or I'll just kind of set out a big bowl of, you know, whatever it was. I think it was goldfish, so that he doesn't have to come get me. I've arranged everything so that it's just all right there, and he has everything he needs. Now, if you're a therapist, you have already seen the problem here. <laughs> that child does not have a reason to communicate. And we all need reasons to, to communicate. And again, the original reason would be, in this specific instance, I'm thirsty or I'm hungry. But there is no reason for that little boy to seek out his mom or to initiate with his mom to request and to use a word that he can use to to ask for something that he needs, there's no reason for him to do that. Now, I am, again, not slamming that mom. You know, she was a mom with three kids all very close together. She was just doing what she had to do to get through the day. Hey, I get it. I have been there. <laughs> so I'm not being overly negative about that. But can you see the problem? There's no, you know, again, reason for him to, for milk, or say fish beyond if he's labeling and seeing it. And again, even if he screams, you know, fish, you know, and that's kind of how he talked. He was such a cute little boy. It wasn't directed toward anybody. It wasn't really communicative, communicative at all. He's just naming that. And it really didn't matter if somebody else was there to hear it or not. <laughs> that was all really kind of his, his language. His words were pretty... Um, self-directed and, and just for him because he didn't really interact with other people uh, as, as uh, well or as frequently as we wanted him to. So by doing 
that really kind of um, mom sent kind of action with I'm going to line the sippy cups up and I'm going to put the snacks out. This is going to be easier for me because then I can deal with the newborn baby and I can deal with my very demanding preschooler and I can kind of let my toddler, you know, I'm only going to be in the put out fires mode here. She really limited his opportunities to initiate. So we have to look at what we can do that would make it easier or more likely that initiation would occur. So let's just talk about some things that we can do. And let me just say something here too. Sometimes parents don't set up these little situations because they'll say, you know, he just gets so mad or I don't want her to be frustrated. I wrote a post several years ago, actually back in 2008, so a long time ago now, eight years ago, called A Little Frustration Can Go a Long Way. And here we're talking about how sometimes kids have to be a little, um, well, frustrated or a little, um, they have to want something. You know, we can't just cater to every little whim or, again, that, desire to learn how to communicate and especially how to initiate doesn't really have an opportunity to grow. So we have to look at ways that we can make it more likely that a child will learn how to start communication with his parents or how to, like in the case of the little boy that I was just talking about, he had some words. He just didn't know how to use those words. So we have to set up situations that will entice a child to try a little harder. <laughs> now, you don't want to overuse this as we talked about before, and you certainly can't be mean-spirited about it. And by that I mean, like we've already given that example of, you know, just don't give him anything until he asks for it. We don't want to do that, but we do want to um, again, make it more likely that a kid will use a word he knows how to use or will learn to use a word because the motivation piece is there. You know, he loves whatever it is that he wants, and you are really setting up a situation that so that he needs you in order to get it. Now, let me mention this post again. A little frustration can go a long way using sabotage and withholding effectively to entice your toddler to talk. That I'm, I'm linking that in the summary of the written post at teachmetotalk.com. I'll link that so that you can find that post easier because, again, it's eight years old, and so you'll need to scroll back through. But here's why I wrote this post originally. There, I was reading a parenting board, which I used to do all the time and don't get as much time to do that anymore. But this mom said uh, they were having this discussion on this, this board, and this is just such an eloquent quote that I'm going to read it. She said, I think it's a truth for humankind that frustration helps the learning process and builds determination, but failure does not. Difficulty can build character and discipline and commitment to one's goal, but failure repeated over and over is defeating, especially for children, and it can be damaging to one's self-concept and self-efficacy. And the mom goes on to say, I try to keep that in mind when her child has frustration as well. I, learn, I want him to learn to strive, not learn to fail. That's kind of where we go wrong and where I was talking about being mean-spirited in that in, while we're setting up these situations, we want it to be playful. We want it to be fun. You kind of want to keep an I'm teasing you attitude where you're not just your whole um, demeanor here doesn't need to be from a, well, let's just say it needs to be from a loving and very patient and fun uh, starting point on your part as the adult so that it's not uh, again, um, it, it's not it's not mean. It's it, you're not you're not doing this in an angry way, or um, you're not lording your power <laughs> over a child, so to speak. So that that's kind of the starting point with this too. So we really want to set up these situations, and in the speech language pathology literature and early education literature, you'll hear these techniques referred to as environmental sabotage or as communication temptations, those kinds of things. And again, you want to be careful as a therapist if you use a term like sabotage with a parent. Sometimes I've seen parents take it too far. And let me just share kind of an embarrassing story. I sort of have taken this too far, especially earlier 
in my career, I had this uh, one little guy, and gosh, this was back in the 90s, and this was before autism really, really exploded. And oh, just a little guy, and he certainly did not get a diagnosis the whole time that um, he was in an early intervention setting. You know, again, in the 90s, we weren't diagnosing kids as early as we do now. But I, I knew that he was probably on the spectrum. And this is when I first began to read uh, Dr. Greenspan's work, you know, Engaging Ch uh, the Child with Special Needs. So I was reading that, and I was, I was reading a lot about environmental sabotage and how you really have to weigh a kid out a little bit so that he has a reason to communicate. In all of that teaching, nobody ever told me, though, especially early in this process, you better be sure that he can say the word before you expect him to use it. So that, that was my missing piece here. But this one little boy in particular, I remember that I could really set him off by not giving him what I knew that he wanted. And I would wait and 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 wait, do you get my point, for a word before. You know, or or sometimes I remember this one session in particular. He really wanted the toy, and I did not. I, I didn't even give it to him. And again, I'm telling you this so that you can benefit from my horrible, catastrophic mistakes <laughs> early on. It was wrong for me not to give him that or back up that back up that um, target. So that I should have, when he couldn't say the word, I should have been backing up so that he could do a sign or a gesture or even look at it. You know, now I would or dream of making a kid wait that long before I gave him something that he wanted and I certainly would make sure that he could say the word before I used it in this kind of context so again you can cross that divide between frustration and failure so that earlier quote that I read we don't want to set up the situation where the kid just again fails and fails and fails for lack of a better word where you tell him you have to say it you have to say it I better hear the word tell me the word when he can't do it, he can't do it. So we're not really talking about that specific context. And again, there's so many ways that we can handle it. I've given you some examples. You make the goal easier. You know, you back up, back up, back up, back up to where he can be successful. So, so even when we're talking about these strategies today, don't take it to a mean place. <laughs> don't take it to the point that a child would be extremely frustrated and, and cross over to you know, where he's crying and, and pitching a fit or where he's mad. And sometimes as a parent or as a therapist, as an adult in general, we get kind of on a little high horse a little bit where we think, well, you know, you're going to do it or bust because I'm in charge here. Don't get into power struggles like that with kids, especially when they've been late talkers and they're still essentially nonverbal because there is no way they're going to be able to um, use a new skill like a word or a sign when they're that distressed. So you can't let them go over the edge. You've got to catch them when they're in that happy, just right place uh, to use these strategies so that you even have half of a chance of being successful. All right, so let's talk about some examples of modifying a kid's environment so that he or she is more likely to want to initiate. So it could be that you do something like um, give them an empty cup. So they have the cup there, and that should prod them, you know, to try to drink, and it's empty. And hopefully, if they can use a word, we'll give them a reason to say that word, to request that word, or even to hand the cup back to you. That would be... Uh, where we would think about going with a kid who's, who doesn't initiate at all for them to know, you know, I, I'm trying to drink here and I'm not getting anything. Hey, let me give it back to this grown-up here so that they can meet my needs. And, again, can you see how giving a kid an empty cup and them trying to drink and then there's nothing there and then them throwing it down or falling on the floor crying just very, very upset that there's no empty cup – can you see how the next little step wouldn't be really saying the word? The next little step would be what? It would be giving you the cup back, or it would be looking at you like there's nothing in here, you know, and again, they can't say it yet, but you certainly would want them to realize it and to realize I cannot physically go pour myself some juice. I need you to be able to do it. So when we're looking at that next little step, just having a kid look at you like there's something wrong here would be progress over throwing the cup across the room or even just walking away disappointed. So you want to look for that next little step. Um, 
it could be that you're doing something like if he has a favorite toy that he really, really loves, you may put that up where he can't really get to it as a way for him to see it and then use a gesture like pointing or look at it and look back at you, some of those earlier gestural things that we were talking about. Not just arranging his environment in some way. It could be that you'll give him part of what he needs for his little uh, activity, but not the whole thing. So a lot of times what I'll do is I have this little whirly racetrack that Fisher Price makes, and they, they put out new ones every few years to coordinate with whatever the latest movie is. And so the little racetrack, um, I'll put the racetrack out, but I'll hold the cars. And so if a kid has a sign for car, he could sign it or he could certainly say car, but you've got to really, again, act kind of stupid <laughs> on your part. Like, what? What do you need? Oh, what is it? Hmm. So that they learn, gosh, I really need to communicate in some way with this lady so that she's going to get me what I want to be able to play with this toy. It could be something like you'll put a kid who loves a bath in the bathtub without any water. And so can you see how you can have so much fun with this? You know, look at what a kid likes to do. If he likes to draw, put out the paper, but don't give him the markers. If he wants to um, watch his favorite show on TV, uh, you could certainly have the TV off and have the remote right there. And his way to initiate, again, is not going to be saying, hey, mom, turn the TV on. An earlier way to initiate that might be just to give you the remote or it might be to look at the remote. And, again, sometimes you're going to say, well, he's just going to walk over and try to turn on the TV himself. Well, with lots of newer TVs, you can hardly figure out how to do that <laughs> without the remote. So you've got to set up the situation so that he is less likely to be so independent and try to do it himself. And some kids might try to do that. I mean, they might, you know, I've had kids when we've tried to use TV like that, walk over and try to smack the TV or, you know, do something to get it turned on. But most of our little guys really do have cognitive splinter skills so that they have understood, man, mom uses this rectangular black object here <laughs> to get this machine to work and so they do figure out how to how to give it to you if you have a kid that hasn't made that connection do some hand over hand so as the therapist you're there with the mom or the dad or whoever, whoever you're doing therapy with you, know, you just take you say oh you you want to watch buzz we're going to watch toy story well mom has to turn on the tv where's the remote and you know you may not be able to use that much language with every kid probably not if we have a kid who still has this developmental phase but you could take his little hand, put it on the remote, and then, you know, give mom some instructions. Say, mom, I want you to hold your hand out really, really big so that he gets that he is giving you the remote. And so you take the kid's hand and you have him put it in mom's hand and then you all cheer and then turn the TV on. And you may have to do that, gosh, over and over and over, you know, 35 times in one session to really teach him I can initiate that request. Now, again, as a speech pathologist, you may be thinking, but I'd rather him say TV or I'd rather him say buzz or I'd rather him say on. Yeah, I get that, but if he doesn't know how to initiate a request non-verbally, he's never going to be able to do it verbally. So build in these little steps and teach your mom how to do that and you know, put on your thinking cap as a therapist so that you're thinking, how could he initiate this non-verbally? What is something he could do? And work with mom and dad on that so that, or the daycare teacher or grandma or the nanny, whoever you're with, work with them and teach them how to think about these things and teach them how important just learning how to initiate even non-verbally is. So what we're doing here, again, we're setting up really obvious situations so that it's darn near impossible for the kid not to communicate. And if he can talk, and especially for our little guys that are, say, on the spectrum, who, again, are labelers but not requesters, this is a super, super way to do it. But you can also do it, as we're talking about in this series, with children who are nonverbal, that they've got to learn that initiation piece first um, before. With, with whatever they can do, whatever their gestural repertoire is, and usually giving something to someone is an earlier skill. We talked about that back in receptive language when we were looking at that several shows ago, and we talked about in play skills how, you know, when children learn how to purposefully manipulate objects. So the 
child that you're working with probably already has that ability. So we want to really teach them how to interact with other people and, and initiate non-verbally first. Um, there are some good rules, some written guidelines for using withholding and environmental sabotage. We've talked a lot about it um, already, but I want to let you know, especially if you're a therapist and you're looking for some written recommendations for parents, uh, go back and take a look at that post. And again, I've linked it in the article about today's podcast. So go and look for those rules so that you can remind yourself and keep yourself from being uh, too mean when you're using environmental sabotage in there. Let me also talk about another strategy that's closely related here when we're teaching a child to initiate. Well, let me say one thing before we even move on. You sort of have to teach parents how to wait too because sometimes parents, you know, especially if communication temptations and environmental sabotage are new techniques for them it's, it, and they're exciting and fun and you want parents to be into it and you want them uh, to get so creative and 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 really embrace uh, the the fun that can happen when you're using these kinds of strategies. You, sometimes parents get so excited and so eager that as soon as their kid um, even sort of looks at it, parents don't wait a little bit to kind of hang back to see might he use a more complex. Um, method of communicating it. I see that he's looking at that truck, at his favorite truck that I've put on the mantle, but will he look back at, you know, he's looked back at me. Will he point? Will he go over and then look at me? You know, what that next little step would be. So talk to parents about waiting so that their child will do the next little thing and talk to parents about how to kind of cue it. Remember what we said when we were talking about the finger painting example that we'd put on the fridge first we're just going to look at it and look back at the kid and then if they don't do anything we're going to move closer to the finger painting and then look at the finger painting and look at the kid and then if the kid still doesn't do anything we're going to point or tap the finger painting to see if the child will look and then if he won't do it we're going to add a word teach a parent how to think sequentially like that with what would the next little level of cueing be and then you also want to think about it for the kid. What would that next little highest response be, which we've already talked about too. All right, so I wanted to mention that waiting piece and that cueing piece because sometimes parents will just kind of dive in and say, well, he sees the drink right there and he still didn't say it, but I better go on and give it to him. And there's no sign of frustration on the child's part. It's not like he's, you know, about to have a meltdown because he hasn't gotten the drink the parents just so eager to meet the child's needs and again we're not that's fantastic we've already talked about that but you want to teach that concept of waiting a little bit all right other things we can do here is if you're trying normal everyday things that a child likes and you're still getting nowhere with this initiation piece you may have to introduce some novelty to increase a child's interest so let's talk about some of the things that we can this is, I'll just be really honest with you, this is one of the main reasons that I still think that we should have some leeway as early intervention providers in bringing toys, and even into home visits, because novelty is a big deal for little brains. I mean, when we see something that we've never seen before, it causes us to pay attention. It causes us to look and alert. And so sometimes, even if you work in a program where you don't bring anything, sometimes just bring in one or two little new things that you know, that's, things that might be unusual, things that you know that a child has not seen before, may be just enough to teach him how to initiate. Uh, I have a big sphere ball. Do you know what I mean by that? One of those balls that collapses and it's you know, made from uh, different colored plastic um you know, rods or connectors, and then you uh, you pull it apart, and it gets really, really big. So toys like that that they've never seen before. If you've taken my new course, Is It Autism? Uh, one of my little friends in that course named Drew, his mom figured out that he loved balloons, and those were helium balloons, and that, that was novel for him. So the, she told me that in one visit, and you better believe what I showed up with next week <laughs> at his next visit. I stopped at Kroger, and got a balloon for him because when you know that a kid likes something but it's still pretty new oh my goodness that's the best material for you to use you may do something too where you're 
putting something that's out of place. And so many children, especially kids on the spectrum, like order. And so when we mess things up a little bit, they notice that. And so that really teaches them to um, at least acknowledge that something is different there. So you've given them a way to initiate. And again, it might be just by um, really looking at a spill that's on the floor. Or it might be that you have um, in some way rearranged the room. It, you know, I do things like I'll take potato head glasses and put them on another toy, even on a toy that doesn't have a face, you know, and that really doesn't seem to belong there to the child. And they'll, they'll notice that. Oh, gosh, this is such a cute little story. Uh, years and years ago, I worked with a set of twins who had seen another therapist first, and she went on maternity leave, and I was the replacement therapist. And so I'm talking to the mom about these kinds of concepts, particularly for one of the little guys. And she said, oh, my other therapist used to do this, but I didn't really understand what she was doing. Now this makes a lot more sense. And I said, what'd she do? She said, well, she would take her her shoes off and her socks off and then she would put her socks like on her hands and so she would wait till my little boys noticed that socks were on her hands and I thought oh gosh that's a great idea but then the mom went on to say and now my little boys are obsessed with putting socks on their hands (laughs) so I think that was a cute little idea of how uh, just exciting that kind of new presentation of an everyday item can be you can do things um, like take a hat and put it on, um, you know, a doll or a, just any, you know, a, a hat that they've never seen before. Say it's their favorite hat, but you put it on a stuffed animal. And if mom has never done that before, you know, kids are going to notice that. So pay attention to novelty there. Um, anything that's out of the ordinary, you know, um, even something like putting um, a basketball but, you know, up on the TV stand, just anything that would look out of place to a child. I read an academic article about this a while ago that talked about uh, in the study, they were doing things like hanging an umbrella from the basketball hoop in the gym at the school where they were working so that they would see if the kid noticed that and in some way wanted the adult to get that down. Or another example was they had a wig Uh, you know, pretend hair, and they put that on a child's favorite toy, which happened to be like a a horse, you know, a little plastic horse. So anything that looks out of the ordinary. So don't discount novelty, especially if you are having difficulty getting a child to kind of notice something and then include you in that noticing. And now remember the environmental placement piece, too. You don't just want it so that the kid notices something's out of place and then he tries to go fix it himself. You want it so that he needs you because that's the initiation piece. It's not just enough for him to notice it and try to get it or do something. You want him to communicate here. You want him to look at you. You want him to reach for whatever that object is and then try to get you to get it for him. And in some way, you know, communicate and begin that interaction. And eventually, again, we want him to use signs and words so that he can request. Another way to target initiation with really young kids is to use what you're already doing, but just make initiation a piece of that. And actually, this would probably come before some of the other strategies that we've talked about today, particularly if you've been using social games with kids uh, for a long time to really increase the interaction piece. You can actually teach them to initiate using what they already like. So, for example, if your child likes to ride on your back, you might get down on the floor and just kind of look at him and just kind of wait him out a little bit. And you've given him a little bit of a cue with some proximity here with, okay, you know, mom's on the floor and she's kind of close to me. A lot of our little guys, that's how they learn how to initiate. And they're not going to say, oh, let's play horsey. They're going to come over, push you down a little bit, try to get you on your hands and knees, right? That's initiation. Let's say that a kid likes to swing in a blanket. What could you do to teach them how to initiate that game? Just leave the blanket on the floor, and then you go. At the beginning, you might have to sit by the blanket to see if they'll like pick it up and hand it to you or bring it to you. And again, if a kid won't do that, use some hand-over-hand assistance. You know, when you're saying things like, oh, it's a blanket. Let's swing, let's swing. 
get your blanket, you know, and again, wait them out a little bit before you even start that. But if they won't give you or mom the blanket, reach down and grab their little hands and put it in mom's hand so that they can initiate that. And that's the first way that we'll teach them to do it. Or you might, if there's another time through the day that you see them just holding that blanket, you can assume or kind of assign that, that there's communicative intent there and say, oh, yes, your blanket, let's swing. You're holding your blanket. Let's swing. And then they learn, oh, my goodness, that's a way that I can initiate this game. So look at what they already like to do, those routines that you've worked so hard to get in place. And think about what that next little step would be. Let's say they like bouncing on your legs, like a little ride a little horsey game, and you bounce them on your legs. And by the way, if you need some help with these kinds of ideas, they're all listed in my book, Teach Me to Play With You. And it's all spelled out for you, and you'll get some great ideas. But, but for this little game, ride a little horsey, if you hold their hands as a part of that game so that you can bounce them on your lap without them falling off, Get them on your lap, but don't immediately offer your hands. Keep your hands down in your lap or even, you know, put them under your legs or behind your back a little bit to see if a kid will reach out and initiate that game with you. It could be, you know, you put them behind your back and the kid does, does nothing. He tries to walk away. Don't let that happen. Then you might you know, get your hands in front of him real quick. And then he learns, oh, my goodness, I have to grab her hands here. You know, that's my part of this game. So don't let it get to that failure point that we talked about before. But just think about, you know, what's his next logical step? What is this next little piece of him doing his part in initiating and see if you can um, get some things going that way? All right. So let me say one more thing as we're wrapping up in this last few minutes for helping a kid learn how to initiate. Once you've gotten some of these things going, you know, he's learned, you know, you've, how to initiate, especially nonverbally by, um, you know, giving you something. Gradually introduce the concept of distance into these little games, meaning that he has to come and get you or that he has to, if he's bringing you something, you're going to be further across the room because that really teaches him, gosh, you know, I've done the first little piece, but it's just that next step. I've got to try a little harder and try a little harder. PECS, the Picture Exchange Communication System, just teaches this technique so beautifully uh, with their distance trading in um, phase two or phase three of PECS where the kid is, has learned how to use the picture to get what he wants, he's learned how to place a picture in someone else's hand. But then in that distance trading phase, we move the receiver. So we move mom a little bit further away. So the kid not only has to pick up the picture, but he's got to walk across the room to give it to mom. And when I'm doing pecs with kids, I'll even make it a little easier than that. Let's say that mom has, we've always just, you know, had that mom's hand right there out ready to receive the picture. We'll ask mom just to hold her hand back just a little bit. So just increase that little bit of distance so that he begins to try a little harder or do that, uh, again, something that's just a little bit more complex with, handing that picture to mom. And so he may not be able to immediately go from giving it to mom when they're seated, you know, face-to-face -face right at the table. Um, he may not be able to walk across the room just yet, but we're going to create a little bit more distance where the chairs are further apart. Or uh, mom's hand is not, again, like I said, not quite as close to him. Or just something, you know, the picture is scooted over just a little bit where he's got to do something that's just a little bit harder so that he can really, really learn how to initiate. All right, so I just got the warning that we have 30 seconds left in the show. I hope that um, these ideas will give you some new ways to work on initiation with children. It is a really, really important skill for new communicators to learn. And again, they're never going to learn it with words initially, you've always got to look at what would come first. So look at the gestures, look at a nonverbal way for a child to initiate that communication first. And if you can't do it with his little hands or little body, you know, start with eye gaze with that. 
before you get to words, you know, we didn't really talk a ton about vocalizations, but anything that's just a purposeful, you know, ah, or da, or, you know, ooh, something, <laughs> just so that a child is vocalizing, using his little voice to get your attention is going to be another way that he can initiate even before he gets to words. All right, so that's it for this time. I hope you'll join me next time for the very last show in our series. Have a great week until then. Bye-bye.